It has been said that the gospel is the greatest story ever told about the greatest offer that has ever been made by the greatest person who ever lived. And in Acts, we see throughout those pages, through the first years of the church, a number of people coming to God and that gospel going out in a mighty way. Today, we're going to take a look over in Acts 8. Uh, So if you have your Bibles with you, you might want to just flip over there. But if we're going to talk about this, I I need to kind of give you a little bit of background information as to uh, the difference between Samaria, Jerusalem, how all of this works out. In fact, what I need to do is go back to 932 B.C. 932 B.C., David lived before this. His son Solomon has taken over the kingdom. And as Solomon uh, winds up passing away, we wind up coming into what is called the divided kingdom. And we have something very similar to this. Now, um, we've got this area right here, which is kind of hard to see. I know it's blue. What would be blue down towards the bottom of Judea? It's the Dead Sea. You're absolutely right. Thank you, Ian. It's the Dead Sea. We have the Jordan River running up through here, and at the top of there would be what? The Sea of Galilee. Yes. So the kingdom, well below down to the end of the Dead Sea, and well above the um, Sea of Galilee at this point in time. You notice right here in the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, there's this star... And that star has the name Samaria. Samaria initially was the seat of the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel. After Solomon died and the northern tribes split off, Jeroboam becomes king in the northern kingdom. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, becomes king in the southern kingdom of Judah. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam, if you go back and read, we're talking, let's see, if you want to make a note, uh, 2 Kings 12, right around in that area and, and following after that, if you want to go read it sometime. Jeroboam doesn't like the idea that he has to go from here all the way down to here in order to worship. So you know what he does? He builds a couple of altars to God up in the northern kingdom, one in Dan and the other in Bethel, so that there's no need for the, those of the northern kingdom to go into the southern kingdom to go worship. As time goes on, the Assyrians, who are slightly north of there, they come in and attack Samaria at about 725 B.C., and the city falls about three years later. Now, after that, we have the Assyrian exile where where the, the northern tribes in the northern kingdom are taken up into Assyria. Then we have the Babylonians who come, and we have the uh, migration that happens to Babylonia, and there's a weakening of the kingdoms in the area, and that northern kingdom was 
pretty well wiped out by the Assyrians. And so we have this area where there are some people, some Jews that are still in the land, but then we have the Assyrians that have moved in, those that we call the people of the land, right? The, the, the tribes that are not uh, the Jews. And there's a time of intermarriage that happens in that northern kingdom area. In fact, what happens is that whole region and the people that live there eventually change from being known as the northern kingdom of Israel to being Samaria. And so that whole region takes on the name of what was the capital city. By Jesus' time, we have these breakups, and you can see the Dead Sea at the bottom, the Sea of Galilee. You see the area of Smyrna between Judea and Galilee there. There's a lot of conflict going on between the people in Samaria and the Jews. And there's two major conflicts that are happening. And I've just mentioned both of them to you. One of which is, is they intermarried with the people of the land. So they are no longer fully Jews as far as the southern kingdom is, is concerned. They're no longer fully Jews because now they're interracial. The other thing is, where do you worship? Do you worship in Samaria or do you worship in Jerusalem. We're not going to get into that, but you may know of a story where Jesus got into that. Do you remember where that is found? That's in John 4. You may recall that the disciples have gone into a Samaritan city while Jesus stayed out in the New Day Sun at Jacob's well, and when they come back, they are, can I put it softly, they are surprised to find Jesus talking to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. But as you remember that story, don't forget that part of that whole story there is to remind us that the Samaritans matter to God. Every soul he has ever created matters to God. Amen? Amen. Now, the Jews had this thought that as God's chosen people, they're the only ones who mattered, and everybody else was doomed for eternity. And friends, they couldn't have been more wrong. Now, as we move into Acts 8, we find two men, three, in fact, that we're introduced to, but two that have very vastly different views of the gospel. The first one, if you're looking there in your Bible, is Saul of Tarsus. Saul is an educated man. He is a Jewish rabbi with an Ivy League education who learned at the feet of the great Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. A huge privilege. He is more than just a teacher. Saul is a man of action. And Saul 
got his hands dirty. Saul was the hatchet man, the hit man of the Jewish religious establishment. And Saul did away with Stephen. And now, that's in chapter 7, and now he's declared open season on Christians. Now, one thing we have to remember about Saul, who becomes Paul. I doubt that there has ever been anyone who has ever lived who has been more sincere about his belief than Rabbi Saul. Here's a principle. We can be sincerely wrong. Because you see, friends, sincerity does not make us right. Today, you will find people who sincerely hold to beliefs about social issues, about political issues, about religious issues. And they're very sincere. But friends, sincerity does not make us right. Correctly understanding, correctly dividing the word of truth, correctly understanding God's will, that is what makes us right. However, being wrong is not necessarily fatal if we are humble to seek out the truth and adjust to it. And we know that Rabbi Saul humbly adjusted to the truth when he realized it was somewhere other than where he was. And we are all blessed because of it. Yes, amen? Amen. Here's another principle. True God followers adjust to the truth. My dad had this expression, um, and, and at first I didn't understand it, but the more I grow into it, the more I have, I have brought it into my own life. He used to say that he was an open-minded conservative. <laughs> Ever heard of an open-minded conservative? <laughs> We're not talking politics here, okay? What he said was, is I am going to hold tightly to the truth as I understand it until I am convinced that truth is in a different direction than where I'm going. And then I need to be humble enough to address to the truth. Do you get it? I hold to what I know and what I've been taught, but I am at least humble enough to realize I may need to adjust my thinking. Because just like Paul Where do we want to be? Do we want to be right or do we want to be with God? We want to be with God. That's very important to remember as we're walking around in the world and as we are talking to others who need to hear about his grace. Now, the second person that we meet in here is Philip. And this is not the apostle. Uh, This is one of the seven deacons or servants that we read about in Acts 6 that were appointed to help with the the Grecian widows, those who have uh, come 
uh, to Jerusalem from outside of the Holy Land. Uh, likely they got there because they're husbands and they came for Passover or for some other major feast. And remember, those trips didn't happen like jumping on Delta and going around the world for two days and coming back. They often would spend as much as a year or more gathering money and funds to go back the other direction. And in that time, some of those ladies' husbands probably died. Uh, but they're there, and they are not part of the, the Jews that were already in the land, but they're part of the other Jews that have come in. They have reached a point of understanding and adjusting to the truth of God in Christ. Amen? Wonderful thing. And those seven servants, deacons, are appointed to help make sure they're not being overlooked and not being taken care of in the distribution of food and various things. Uh, Stephen, obviously, is another one. Um, Joy asked me this week, she said, you know, I'm looking this over. How do we know that that Philip is, is Philip the deacon and not Philip the apostle? Well, simply put, a couple of things are happening if you really look here. Uh, number one, we will read, it does say right there in the very first of, of, uh, of Acts, that all the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else scattered. The other thing is, right after in Acts 6, where we start reading about the appointing of deacons, the very first deacon that we read about is Stephen. And you know what we hear about? We don't hear about him taking care of the Grecian Jews, although we know that happened. You know what we hear about? He's proclaiming the word of God. Boldly. And he's our first martyr. The very next story is Philip doing the same thing in Samaria and then down on the road to Ethiopia. So that's how we see that this is the evangelist as he is called. He is a gospel spreading machine. Acts 1, and Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So, if you know the story, Stephen, big speech, really tried to give the context for how Jesus is actually the Messiah, the one who was to come, challenges the Jewish leaders, uh, they get mad, they kill him. So we have Stephen's trial and death, which becomes the catalyst, an explosion of persecution. This also marks a milestone, a, a shift in the life of the church, because with this first recorded martyr in church history, you know, up until this point, the whole focus of the gospel has been right there in Jerusalem, working with those who have come from all over the world from Passover. So don't think they're just there because they're going to be sending that out as everybody goes home, right? But that's where they've concentrated their efforts. And now, because of this persecution, the church is actively pursuing evangelism outside of the city. So the persecution becomes in a catalyst for an explosion of the gospel and the spread of the gospel, which is interesting 
Because there's a principle right here. Sometimes God will kick us down from a mountaintop experience so that we will minister to other people. I like being on the mountaintop. I like being in services that are uplifting. I like being and having my countenance raised. But folks, the work is not done in here. The work is done out there. So here's another principle. Many times, God will use bad situations for good things. Think for just a moment. Has there ever been a time in your life that you would call a bad situation that God has helped you through? That God has used for a good thing? I know there's been those times in my life Because you see, God is in the restoration movement. He is in the restoration business. And there are times that he will use bad situations for good things. Now, we also need to make certain that we note that the apostles didn't leave. And, you know, that makes me ask the question, why? Why did they decide to stay right there? Do you know the simple answer? I got three words for you. Do you know what they are? I don't know. But I suspect that these men who abandoned Jesus in his greatest need that night in the garden, the next morning as he hung on that cross after seeing the risen Lord, they have drawn a line in the sand and they are not running again. Here is where we stand. A deliberate decision. They don't want to flee You know, it's a funny thing about bad situations. They can bring out the best in people. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women in and put them in prison. A couple of things here. You want to know the depth of this persecution? That little phrase, and women, should not pass through your mind and just keep going. Because most of the time, women are considered property, valued property, but under the law, still property. They're considered to be inconsequential. And yet, they're making sure they're rounding up everybody, not just the men. The other thing I don't want to let go is this word, destroy. Saul, very bright 
young rabbi was wreaking havoc on the church. And this word destroy is used to describe the destruction that's done by a wild boar. I don't know if you remember the old commercials, but you ever remember a commercial about the bull in the china shop that was marching around and knocking everything over? That's kind of what it reminds me of. He was a bull in the china shop, just going this way and that. This is also the same word that is used for an army having leveled a city, having totally leveled the city. Saul, armed with the authority of the chief priests, literally tore the church apart, scattering its members abroad. And as they fled, the persecution, God used them. Those who had been scattered, preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. By the way, there's a lesson in that one verse. Why the miracles? To get the attention Why? So people would listen. Why? So hearts were changed. Isn't it a beautiful sentence? With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Paul's intent was to scatter, to disperse the truth, to make them totally ineffective. And what actually happened was exactly the opposite. The scattering of the early church made them even more effective. You see, all Saul managed to do was to scatter the seeds of the gospel around so that more people heard and believed. Now, for the most part, those fleeing refugees were accidental missionaries. As they made friends, they simply shared their faith. Just as each one of us are called to do every day. And here's the principle. When God is on your mind, it is natural for him to be on your lips. Amen? Because you see, it's not how much you get into the Word, it's how much the Word gets into you, so that as the Word gets into you, it is what comes out of you. Notice also, Philip, you know what we see there? We see another natural pattern. There in verse 8, 6, he does these, these healing signs, which earned him the right to be heard. In those early days, those signs were ways of gathering attention because you had to have people's attention in order for them to listen to the good news. Another little principle here, positive actions lead to positive reception. We have to earn 
the right to be heard. And I can tell you, and we're talking about this in Sunday school as well, uh, slightly different words, but we're talking about it. You see somebody as a soul that God created and that he loves and he died for, you can't help but speak to them as if they're a person who has worth, who has value. And people long for that kind of a connection, for somebody to see them and to speak not at them but to them. Because people don't care what you know until they know that you care. So Christian siblings, how does our community know that we care about them? What positive actions are we taking to gain their attention? Philip, through the power of the Holy Spirit, did some pretty amazing things. I mean, those that were afflicted with unclean spirits were freed. People who were paralyzed and lame, they were healed. They didn't have the benefit of the New Testament scriptures at this time that tells of God's wonder and love. They needed some sort of firsthand evidence that the Spirit of God was on Philip, that he was for real. And that firsthand evidence of God's Spirit, that ought to be on you too. Why do I say that? Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God's Spirit, access to the same Spirit that Jesus had access to, that Philip had access to. I mentioned last week that for centuries the church taught that in that act of baptism at the same time as when the Spirit comes in, we still believe that. Do you realize that you should have firsthand evidence that the Spirit is upon you? And you know what that evidence is? It's agape. It's that God-like love to value people because God values them. That you choose to love them regardless of how they treat you. In fact, Saul, who we know as Paul, lists that as the most important gift that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives us. There's a whole section. 1 Corinthians 13, 
where he's trying to tell us what that most precious gift is that we need to pursue more than any of the other gifts. Because agape has the power to open doors and to change lives. You may say, well, I'm not Philip. I can't perform any miracles. That may be true, but you can love unconditionally. Enter a third man, Simon, sorcerer of local fame. Now, for some time, a man named Simon practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave their attention to him and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because... He amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed, he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name and by the power of Jesus Christ. What did they do? They were baptized. Who? Men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Why? Because people know the real from the counterfeit. And so did Simon. See, the message of the gospel, for those who have never heard it, is, is fresh. It is relevant. It is powerful. Acts 12, Acts 8, 12, we see that the message that Philip gave focuses on two very specific things, right? The good news, the gospel, the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God that it is at hand and it is for everyone and the name of Jesus Christ. We've mentioned this before. That is an idiomatic phrase. The name of, in the name of a God, in the name of somebody is by their authority or by their power. So when you see that he was preaching the good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ, don't forget that means by the power of Christ in his resurrection, God made flesh. Acts 4.12, you remember Peter making the statement to the Sanhedrin? There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Amen? Amen. And the Samaritans responded in the faith that they had. That was an infant faith. It was a small faith. It needed to grow. 
But these people heard and believed and were baptized. They acted on the faith that they had. This is the biblical pattern. You see this over and over again throughout those first 25, 30 years through Acts. Paul was, uh, Philip was given the same message that the apostles gave. God was doing a new thing out there among them. Philip says Christ came, Christ died. Death no longer has a hold over us because Christ lives. He resurrected and he has gone to the Father and he will be back. And the response of any believing heart should be to give your life to Christ when you understand the truth of those words. Even Philip, I mean, even Simon, even Simon believed and was baptized. Now, if you know the story, if you, if you read on a little bit further, you're going to see that Simon has some really real spiritual maturing that he's going to have to do. He's not there all the way. He's got some maturing. Yet he was willing to act on the faith that he had. In fact, we all do that when it really comes down to it. We act upon the faith that we have. We can't help it. It's just natural. It's just as natural as breathing. Faith is not faith without action. It's not just the simple English intellectual assent of the word belief. It is belief that drives you to do something. It is the action that comes out of that belief. That is what faith is. And friend, we cannot say that we have faith that Jesus is God's son and believe that he died for us and that we accept him as Savior without being willing to serve him as both Lord and King of our life. Is there anything holding you back? What is it? What is stopping you from giving your all to Christ? Or if you've given your all to him, what hinders you from telling others about him as you go? In a few moments, we're going to have this call to action invitation hymn, an opportunity for you to Speak with the Lord if that's what you want. Let the rest of us sing. You, you pray. If there's something that's blocking you, make a decision and act on the faith you have. It's also a time an invitation is always open. Um, but I understand not everybody wants to come down immediately. There's a place on the back of the card 
If you want to learn something more about baptism, you want to learn something about what it is to be a, a member of the church here and all, you can mark that. The card will come to me and, and I'll get a hold of you. If I can't, somebody else will. But in this time, act on the faith that you have. Father God, we thank you for for the physician Luke who painstakingly went and listened and researched and found out what people know about Jesus and wrote it down and paid attention through those first 25, 30 years of the church and recorded the events that were there. And we thank you, Father, that we know that even as you used Philip to change the hearts in Samaria, that your gospel is still changing lives today. And we know, Father, that your word tells us that it will not go out and come back void. Listen to our hearts, Lord, and use us for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.